Well, good morning. As we continue our worship, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. And when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning Fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Entering the Christmas season... Waiting is the hardest part. No one likes to wait. Kids always ask, how many days before Christmas? The other day, our youngest, three-year-old Sophia, speaking for children everywhere, said, Christmas Day takes long to start. There's waiting for gifts. There's even waiting to give gifts. All on her own, our five-year-old Savannah has wrapped eight beautiful bags of gifts for the family. She already has them under the Christmas tree. Just waiting for Christmas Day. Waiting is a key concept in Scripture. It signifies to wait with expectation. And the primary focus of biblical waiting and hope is God himself. He is where our hope must rest because he is faithful to all his promises. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God's people were awaiting that day. And those of faith who hoped in the promises of God lived in expectancy of their fulfillment. Now, if you were a devout Jew living in the time of Isaiah you would have put your hope in a coming Messiah. 
Now Israel, excuse me, Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah and Hosea. He lived until at least 681 B.C. And tradition had that he died under the reign of King Manasseh by being sawn in two with a wooden saw. You may read about him in Hebrews 11.37. He's quoted 65 times in the New Testament, more than any other prophet. Of the six primary Christmas prophecies, five come from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And the people of Isaiah's day were expecting a deliverer. They were expecting a savior. Now, when someone's pregnant, they'll say, you know, we're expecting. My family, we were expecting five different times, gifts from God. Now, when, they, when someone says, you know, well, I'm expecting, there's, there's an implied truth here that there's a baby inside, and they're waiting for the baby to make its appearance. Now, uh, nine months, give or take, a few days or weeks here on either side. But there's time to, in, in the expectancy stage to, for the baby to grow and to develop. Uh, there's even time for people who were surprised that a baby was coming to get used to the idea. Uh, things are going to change. In this time of expectancy, waiting for a baby, you know things are going to change. Diapers are going to change. Lots of them. But those waiting expectantly for a coming Messiah were waiting for a gift from God to the world. A gift that would bring change. And Isaiah chapter 9 highlights two aspects of the change that God's gift would bring. The first is that God's gift would bring Dramatic change, drastic change, huge change, a a total reorientation. God is pointing to the fact that good things are coming, replacing the bad. Instead of darkness, we read in verse 2, there will be light, the complete opposite. Isaiah prophesied during a time of the divided kingdom. His message was directed to Judah in the south. And he spoke of the empty ritualism of of his day. He spoke of the idolatry that so many of his people had fallen into. In verse 2 we read, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The people of Isaiah's time were living in spiritual darkness. There was no one to guide them. They were blinded to God's truth. Their hearts were darkened. They were not wise. But they would see, God said, a great light. Now, light is a key word in Isaiah. It's used 20 different times in the book. And the Hebrew word often signifies daybreak or daylight, but it can also be symbolic of life and deliverance. Now, in the Bible, light is often associated with having a true knowledge and true understanding of who God is. Light is also described in Scripture as God's clothing, that he clothes himself in light, that uh, it's a picture of his holiness 
of his majesty, of his splendor, of his glory. Now, when we live lives pleasing to God, we are said to be walking in the light. Now here, in the context of this passage, the people were walking in darkness because they were under the oppression of those who had captured them, but also because they were in spiritual darkness. But they would see the glory of God in Christ, the light of the world. Now, that's not all. Instead of gloom and anguish and contempt, there would be gladness and joy. You see that in verses 1 and 3. In verse 1 we read, there will be no more gloom. What a great beginning. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In fact, it says that in earlier times that God had treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. How so? They were the first to suffer from the invasion of the Assyrians. And here, they would be the first to benefit from the coming Messiah and his presence among them. God says that he would make that place glorious. By way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, where? Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the Gentiles. They had forsaken God, but now God in his grace would bring glory and they would see it in their own land. You know, this was fulfilled in Matthew. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, this was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. In Matthew 4, it's recorded here when Jesus was beginning his ministry. In verse 12, Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, and he went into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, we see in verse 13, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And look at verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. That's Jesus. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. That's Jesus. And then verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That word was actually fulfilled. In verse 3, God then says, You shall multiply the nation. God was again confirming his covenant with Abraham. We see it in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, that his descendants would be as numerous as what? The sand was on the seashore. He says, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They used to have gloom, now they will have gladness. In fact, so much gladness, they would be glad in the presence of God. Glad in the presence, instead of walking in darkness spiritually. There would be great rejoicing. Joy, not sorrow. Freedom, not slavery. Light, not darkness. And instead of oppression, there would be freedom. Now, the people of that time were definitely not free. During Uzziah's 52-year reign, which was 
uh, roughly from 790 to 739 B.C., Judah had a port for commerce on the Red Sea. They had constructed towers and walls and other uh, military fortifications. They were militarily and, and financially strong. But they were spiritually weak. Uzziah tried to assume the role of the priest. And he burned incense on the altar. And God judged him for his sin with leprosy from which he never recovered. While he was still living, his son Jotham, in 750 to 731 B.C., uh, took over the duties of king, even before his dad had died. And Assyria then began to emerge as an international power at that time. So Judah began to be persecuted both by Israel and Syria from the north. Now, Jotham was a fighter like his dad. He was a builder like his dad. But spiritually, his condition and the condition of his people was just as corrupt as under his father. And then Ahaz began to reign. And Ahaz reigned in Judah from age 25 to age 42, I believe. And Israel and Syria formed an alliance uh, to combat the Assyrian threat from the east. But Ahaz refused to let Judah join. So they threatened to push him off the throne and to revolt. And war resulted in 734 B.C. Now Ahaz goes to Assyria for help. And his connection with Assyria led him to set up a pagan altar in Solomon's temple. Now, what happened next? Assyria captured Samaria, the the capital of the northern kingdom. And he carried most of the people away into captivity. They were under the yoke of others. Now look at verse 4. God says, You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. God is pointing back to something that had happened in the past. What was significant about the Battle of Midian? Well, at that time, this was uh, several hundred years before Isaiah's time, for seven years in a row, God's people did evil in his sight. Now, that wasn't the most uncommon thing in the world for them. But for seven years, they did evil in God's sight. And so God gave them over you know, into the hands of the Midianites. And they were captured, and then God chose Gideon to rescue them, deliver them from the hands of the Midianites. You probably would remember the story if you're familiar with Judges chapters 6 and 7. But even though Gideon felt weak, he went to God and said, I can't do this. God promised that he would defeat the Midianites, that Gideon would lead the defeat. So at the Battle of Gideon... God brought a victory to Gideon and an army of 300. He had whittled their army down from 32,000 to show that it was not their power, but God who did the battle. Now, in Isaiah 9-4, God is promising a similar kind of victory. One that would show his strength to save and not man's. In Isaiah's time, Hezekiah began to rule 
over Judah in about 715 B.C. And he did so for 29 years. Now, he was a reformer. And he, in 701 B.C., became ill. Life-threatening illness. And he prayed to God. And God added 15 years to his life. Now, also at that same time, in 701 B.C., Sennacherib, uh, the Assyrian king, invaded the coastal towns and took many people back to Assyria. He surrounded Jerusalem. He demanded their immediate surrender. But Hezekiah, with Isaiah's encouragement, refused. Refused to give up the city. Now look at verse 5. God says, Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, every cloak rolled in blood, will not be used anymore for battle. They will be for the fire. They won't be necessary in God's kingdom. There will be a time of universal peace. When? I believe this is pointing to Christ's return. Because we know until that time there will be wars and rumors of wars. But God is making a promise. He's making a promise that something better is coming. So you better get with the program. Now there's something else about God's gift. Some other change that he will bring. Yes, there will be drastic, dramatic, complete reorientation. But here's the thing. The good thing. That won't just last for a little while. That wouldn't just be a temporary fix. No, God's gift would bring lasting change, permanent change, eternal change. This was their hope, not for a a, a little bit of relief for a while, but for eternal relief. Now, it's our hope as well. Now, how could this come about? Look at verse 6. Probably the most well-known verse in this passage. For a child will be born. So they're expecting. A son will be given. So this child will be a son. And the government is going to rest upon this child. And he will have a name. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. By the construction of these words, it looks as if they are four pairs of two words apiece, each forming a title. So, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Some have said it would be just Wonderful and then Counselor. Either way, He will rule. He will be born, as Isaiah 7.14 promised, of a virgin. The gift of God will come, and he will rule well, because the government will rest on him, and he will have a name. He will be recognized by 
who he is and what he does. They will have the privilege even of interacting personally with this gift. You notice how personal these words are. Wonderful counselor. In contrast to kings like Ahaz, he will implement uh, supernatural wisdom. He is wisdom itself. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, we read, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. He will be called Mighty God. Messiah would be God in the flesh. In John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is God incarnate, Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He will be mighty, a powerful warrior. He will do and bring to pass everything that verses 3 through 5 suggest. He will be called Everlasting Father. He will be a father to his people forever. The Messiah appointing us to our loving Heavenly Father who will care for and discipline those whom He loves. He will be called the Prince of Peace. Isn't it interesting? We're always looking for peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And often we find something else. But the Messiah would bring peace on earth forever. His rule would be forever. In verse 7 we read, there will be no end to the increase of his government or the increase of peace. And on the throne of David, he is going to rule. And he will do that from that point forever. Through eternity. See, Messiah would rule on David's throne. It was hinted again and again and again through the scriptures. In Psalm 89, in verse 1, we read, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. God had said it. Jesus would be born to rule eternally. He would rule the nations of the world. And his kingdom would be eternal. Forever. Final. Everlasting. Settled. Secure. It's a cause for confidence. It's a cause for assurance. That he would bring light instead of darkness. That he would bring gladness instead of gloom. That he would bring freedom instead of oppression. But we must remember something. God's people at that time were not merely victims of others that had come in upon them. They were not merely victims of evil from the outside. What had happened... And we must remember that first and foremost, they were victims of their own sin, their own waywardness, 
And the consequences were then oppression by their enemies. God had said it again and again and again, and the patterns still remain. God had called his people to faithfulness because he is faithful. They would go astray. God would bring consequences. They would come back in repentance. God would reaffirm. They would go astray. God would bring consequences, and so on and so forth. Much like us. Praise God, the faithful party is God Almighty. Now, they were really their own oppressors. How do you know that? How do we know that? Where do we see that? Just look at Isaiah chapters 1 through 8. In fact, go to Isaiah 1. Just go back a few pages in your Bibles. The very beginning of Isaiah is a vision that he has. And in verse 2 we read, The Lord speaks. Listen, because the Lord speaks. And here's what he said. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Look down to verse 4. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah loved to call God the Holy One of Israel. It's one of his favorite names for God. It says, they have turned away from Him. Now go to verse 13. God said, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. It doesn't, they don't go together. They're like oil and water. In verse 15 he says, even if you multiply prayers, I won't listen. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. And then in verse 18, good news, he says, come, let us reason together. It's like a court of law, and God is laying out the case against Israel, and they have nothing to stand upon. And he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. In verse 19, he says, If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's like the song we sang this morning. From my sins, O hide thy face. Lot them out in your boundless grace. God is reaching out once again to his people with boundless grace. He says to them in verse 26, At that day you will be called the righteous city. You will be called a faithful city. In verse 29 he says, You're going to be ashamed though of what you have desired. They will be ashamed of their sins. They will confess that God's judgment is just. They, will, they must humbly rely upon God's mercy. He says to them, you're going to be embarrassed at the things that you sought after that weren't of me. And it goes on. All the way through chapter 8. God's people revolting and God continuing to reach out in His mercy. You see, wickedness was not outside of them, it was within them. And they would be ashamed due to their sin. 
But God then promises something they never could have dreamt. He promises a Messiah. He promises a deliverer. He promises a Savior. Completely undeserved, completely unsought, completely unmerited, completely uncalled for by the people. And he gives it out of love. He offers freely, bringing change that is God's work, not man's work. You see, the wonder of God's gift is that it is all of grace. It's all of grace. In verse 7, we read that at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Will accomplish what? Everything that God said would happen. It's really quite simple. It's all based upon the character of God. On his will, on his rule, on his choice. We see it by faith. Faith and hope do not disappoint. There is assurance in the word of God. And God can be trusted that his word is faithful. That his promises will come true. It will come to pass. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In fact, if you retrace even in this passage the idea of the assurance that what is being said will happen, look at verse 1, there will be no more gloom. The people who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. Verse 3, they will be glad in the presence of God. Verse 6, a child will be born. A son will be given. The government will will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. There will be no end to his government or of peace. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a foregone conclusion. You can take it to the bank. It will happen. Now, we see living proof in Isaiah. In Isaiah's own lifetime, things God spoke through him came to pass. Sennacherib's effort to take Jerusalem failed. God, uh, Isaiah, God spoke through Isaiah and said that would be the case. God healed Hezekiah's illness. Isaiah said that he would. Long before Cyrus, king of Persia, came on the scene, Isaiah named him as Israel's deliverer from Babylonian captivity. And fulfillment of his prophecies of Jesus' birth give further proof that Emmanuel, born of a virgin, would be God incarnate. See, the pattern of literal fulfillment of what God spoke through Isaiah gives us assurance that the prophecies of Jesus' second coming will also come to pass. They will see literal fulfillment. You see, we want everything instant. Give it to me now. How many of you always want to see your gift before the day? See, in the past, God called his people to expectant waiting, regardless of circumstance. And we can live with the assurance that God's word will come to pass. See, the promise of God's gift calls for patience. It's something that is a commodity that we, a character trait that we uh, just don't feel so secure about in our own lives a lot. 
In James chapter 5, let's go there. James chapter 5 and verse 7. We are encouraged to be patient. James 5, 7. Therefore, be patient, brothers. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Three times. Strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient. See, we don't have to worry or fret or be anxious that maybe Jesus won't come back. Biblically speaking, it is not in question. It never was, it never will be, but humanly speaking, it will always be in question. Mankind will always find, try to find a way apart from God. Consistently rebelling, even though God has provided a gift that is the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the biggest thing. This is the biggest issue. And if this is under God's control, so is everything else. You wonder, who am I going to marry someday? Where am I supposed to go to school? What do I do next? Where's my next job coming from? No matter what, everything is under this big thing. This is the big thing. So we can praise God. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now God keeps his promises. He can be trusted. And in the, in the past, even Isaiah's day, there were people of faith who waited for Christ's first coming. In the days of the prophets... You see, Isaiah prophesied of Christ's first coming. But he also prophesied of his second coming as well. The New Testament talked about Jesus' first coming. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Christians today, believers in Jesus today, we eagerly wait we eagerly wait in faith for the second coming of Jesus. It's just as sure as the first one. That Jesus is coming back soon at the right time and that all will come about as God has stated and God has planned. In fact, go to 2 Peter in chapter 3. In verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is, get this, patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then you get the picture in heaven, Revelation 22. You see, in heaven there will be no more gloom, no more contempt, no more anguish or darkness, no more sin. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and and my reward is with me. Echoing the words that Isaiah spoke 
in chapter 40 and in chapter 61. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. And then in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes. This is Jesus speaking. Yes, I am coming quickly. Our response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that your promises are sure. We thank you that we can live in that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's um, good for us to look back to the prophets and see that what was said hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, came true. That's awesome for us. Because it points to God's sovereignty. It points to His goodness. It points to His mercy and to His grace. And it verifies the truth of His word. And it shows us that God's program of grace has always, always been in effect. In Romans 6.23 we read, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this necessitates a response on our part. And I think our task is pretty clear on this. The first is to accept the gift God offers. Accept that gift. We read in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. It's a proven fact. And Jesus said, He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. So that's the first thing. For us to accept that gift. If you've never accepted the free gift of God, eternal life in Jesus, I invite you this very day, even this very moment, to come to Jesus. Jesus will not reject you. You might fear that, but he won't. He will accept you with open arms. Believe in his death on your behalf on the cross. Believe that he came back to life. Believe that he's coming back. See, we read in the scriptures too that if someone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. So that may be your case today. But there's something else that we need to live in light of that gift that we need to live following Jesus in such a way that we orient our lives around pleasing God and trusting and obeying Him. See, God will do the changing. God will do the changing, changing our hearts and changing our lives. But there's one last thing. We need to share that gift. And all this week I was praying, Lord, what does it look like? What does it look like for us as individuals, for us as families, for us as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ? And then I received a phone call this last week from a good friend of ours who says to me, during my prayer time this week, I really sensed that God was wanting me to do something 
to reach out with the gospel this Christmas. And this person said, uh, so what I decided to do was uh, get this letter. There's this letter called uh, Father's Love Letter. And uh, it's, it's, it's a, some pastor put it together, and it's just from, through the whole script, it's just verse after verse, like God's letter to his child. And it's an evangelistic tool. And the idea was, get this letter, put a $5 bill in it, and put it in an envelope, and just pray and say, Lord, who should I give this to? Who, who needs you, first and foremost, but who could also use the $5? Lead me to the person who, who needs this. Well, the reason they called me, because they said, I've been going for, to, around to churches. This is someone I know very well. And they said, I, uh, I want to offer you, uh, you know, $500 worth of $5 bills and 100 letters if you want to use them in some way at your church. I said, sounds great. I love it. So they drove over to my house right then, brought me a stack of $500, uh, 500, uh, $105 bills, and 100 letters. And uh, we got them here this morning. And if you want to do this, when you leave today, you can, uh, both Ed and Carla are going to be at both of the doors, and there's uh, the door right over here, and there's going to be, uh, there's 50 of them for this service, 50 for Nick's service. Now remember, they've got a $5 bill in them, so don't, you know, rip them in half or something. Uh, but pr- take them and pray. Say, Lord, who should I, who, who needs this? And uh, you may, there's some extra copies of the letter. You may want to go do your own thing, come up with something else. But we need to share the gift. This is one way. There's a lot of ways we can do this. Um, but I thought it was well-timed that it came this week. And, uh, and so here it is. And uh, we prayed over these letters. We prayed, Lord, bless the people that these are going to go to. And may they go to people who truly need to know Jesus and who could use the $5 bill as well. So... Let's, let's stand. We're going to pray and, um, and then be dismissed. You know, Isaiah was called the evangelical prophet. His words really point up the fact that we need to courageously and boldly share the gospel with those around us. And so my prayer this week is that that's what we would do. We would live in light of the truth that we profess, and then we would look and, and, and look expectantly who God's going to lead us to, that we would share the life-giving gospel with. Let's pray. Lord God, we just commit ourselves to you. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the grace we enjoy in you. And we pray, Lord, you would use us this week in some way to share your gift. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.